Welcome to Freedom Matters Today. This is Michael J. Sutton. And a Happy New Year. Today is the 1st of January 2024. Today we're continuing our series on the identity of Jesus as part of our freedom from past and prejudice theme. Freedom Matters Today looks at freedom from a Christian perspective. Today's question is probably the most important question of all. Why did Jesus die? And it's an appropriate it's an appropriate question as we begin the new year. As we focus our thoughts on the year ahead and we look back to the year that has passed, all that has happened, all that we did and did not do, all that transpired in our world, our memories, our dreams, our expectations, those whom we love, those we meet, and the rest of the world around us. And we look forward to the future, what this year will bring, whether we look backwards or whether we look forwards. This question is one that shapes, moulds and transforms our life. Why did Jesus die? For those of you who have been listening to this series from the beginning, we have been pondering the identity of Jesus. Who is he? Who is Jesus? We've been doing this because identity is very much at the heart of what it means to be a person today. Identity is the issue that dominates the headlines, universities and our media. Some call it identity politics, though that's not really what it's about. It's about people finding out who they are. It's about people discovering their own identity. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with the search for self-realization, for self-identity. In the same way, it is important for us to know the identity of Jesus. It's important for us to know the pronouns of Jesus. It's important for us to know who Jesus is. Freedom Matters today looks at freedom from a Christian perspective. We're not primarily looking at politics, though politics is well within the sphere of the Christian For it is impossible for a Christian to live a life with a compartmentalized way of thinking. Otherwise, they're not a Christian, are they? How can they separate one part of their life from another? They must live honestly before God and before everyone else with a degree of consistency in their life and their conduct. But freedom is not just about politics, it is about the heart. And Freedom Matters Today is primarily about our heart, our attitudes, how we view God and how we view each other. Really that's what Freedom Matters Today is about. It's about taking responsibility for the decisions we make concerning our faith. It is not passing on that responsibility to the priest or the pastor or the minister but it's taking responsibility ourselves for the decisions we make 
and for the faith we have and for the Saviour we follow. We need to own our own faith. It needs to become ours, not our father's or our mother's or our brother's or our sister's or our church's. It must become our faith, my faith. And we must, must at some point in our life ask ourselves the question, why did our Saviour die? Why did the Lord Jesus die? Why did Christ die? So far we've seen that the Son of God is the message of God. We have seen that the final word of God came to those whose ancestors heard God speak in many and various ways through the prophets. We discovered that this Son, Jesus of Nazareth, is both the heir to all things and the one through whom God created the world. We have learned that the Son is the radiance of the glory of God. And we have discovered that he is the exact representation of his being, his substance, sustaining all things in the universe by his powerful word. It's amazing what must occur for one to publish a book. It's not simply getting a book published, but it is a process, a process of writing, editing, revision, formatting, checks, rechecks, covers, alignment, more checks, and the seemingly endless revisions which finds more errors, and then the final submission to, and in my case, to Amazon KDP, and then the final check of the sample copy and the various procedures one needs to perform in order to have the manuscript approved. And finally, at the end of this process, it is published. The sense of relief is incredible and exhausting. And there is a deep abiding feeling of accomplishment. The feeling that it, it's done. I got my book published. The phrase, I got my book published, sounds tiresome in our language because most people have the idea that getting a book published is no easy feat. We all know how difficult it is to do and do properly. And when it's done, we all sigh a sigh of relief for our friends or family when they finally get it done. We also know why they did it. This is because we're often told the reason why they got their book published and they were upfront about the why and the how and the when and the what. Writers want to get their books published. It's their goal, their expectation. Mountaineers expect to climb mountains. Canoeists expect to race the rapids or glide up the river. Doctors expect to heal. Dentists expect to extract teeth. Teachers expect to teach. Students expect to learn and mothers and fathers expect to parent. So as we start this new year, looking back and looking forward, what does the Son of God do? What did he do? What was the consequence of his profession or his calling? What did he set out to do? Many people have come and gone with their own answers to this question. Most take a long time to explain it, though people often say, Well, Jesus came to die for your sins. Or, Jesus came to die in your place. Or, Jesus came to show us the way to God. Or, Jesus came to show us the love of God. Or something like that. 
the author of the letter to the Hebrews says it quite differently. Have you noticed it? Let me read that verse that I omitted in the beginning. Come straight after this one. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. After he had provided purification for sins. So there is something missing, isn't it? If you contrast this verse to the verses I mentioned before. Jesus came to die for your sins. Jesus provided, the Son provided purification for sins. It's only a short phrase, but it presents in these few words something quite missing from our narcissistic religious sentiment. Even the ones I mentioned before, even though they may be correct in their own way and with their own meaning. After he provided purification for sin, says the author of the letter to the Jews. And he speaks to us 2,000 years later. The same message, not a new message, but the same message about the same person and about the same event. For this is quite profound, and as Jews, they would have known all about the need for the purification of sins. They would have known of the importance of the ritualistic temple rites to perform it. After all, Moses set up the system of priests who acted on behalf of the people to provide a scapegoat for their sins and for their own in a bloody sacrifice undertaken daily in the temple. The shedding of blood, the blood of animals, to take the place of the sacrifice of people for their terrible sins against God, according to the stipulations of the Torah. Yahweh was and remains a holy God, a God who cannot abide sin, which is a rebellion against the kingship of God, a disease that afflicts the hearts of all people, a willfulness not of body but of being, of spirit, for all people have a spirit, an inner being, a substance of their true heartfelt desire. And in this place beats a rebellious, selfish, sinful spirit. All people are born with it and none are born without it. A disposition for evil, a predilection for selfishness. And while discipline, meditation and all kinds of lifelong techniques can mitigate it, or resist it, it cannot be conquered. Children are moulded by their parental love, guidance and discipline, and without this guidance the child will grow into a malevolent little god, with all the brutality of the human heart. The failure to parent, the failure to show love, kindness, discipline and chastisement for children will result in a generation of unrestrained personal evil. And it is no wonder as much of this time reflects generations of unbelievable narcissism. In the Torah, people were not sacrificed for their sins, but animals were. 
and this blood was to pay for, or return for the sins committed unintentionally by the people of Israel in their covenant with Yahweh. The readers of this letter would have known exactly what the author was saying. We probably don't understand the full meaning of it 2,000 years later. Many of us are not Jews, though some of us may well be. The readers of this letter would have known precisely what the author was saying. It would have been deeply offensive to many of them. Jesus was not a priest, nor was he a Levite. He was of the house of David, a royal lineage, but by that time of little importance in a practical sense. Few people saw the house of David as one of this of significance, certainly after the age of the Maccabees, the former Jewish potentates prior to the arrival of Rome. Jesus was not, according to the law of Moses, able to provide purification for anyone's sins, and yet this is what the author asserts. Jesus was someone who had a direct role in the sacrificial system of the Jewish temple and the law, the Torah. This is completely out of the blue for us, as we might have noticed that you and I do not figure in this scheme directly. In other words, it's not about us. It's not about me, and it's not about you. What did Jesus do, and how is it different? Well, the author of the letter to the Hebrews says that the Son provided purification for sin. He doesn't say his sin, or our sin, or their sin, or the sins of the past, or the sins of the present. The efficacy of this purification is for sin itself. For the obstinacy, the evil, the horror, the crime of sin in this divine universe, a universe created by and for God, and shaped by God, yet marred by sin. Jesus provided purification for sin. This seems to be, and suggests most certainly, a completed act. It is accomplished. It is done. It is finished. In other words, he provided purification for all sin. That is sin in its totality. Sin in its completeness. And sin in such a way that it will no longer pose a threat to this divine system that God created. There is a big difference, dare I say a chasm, between what we say Jesus did and what he did. According to the author of the letter to the Hebrews, we say, or we tend to say, that if you believe in Jesus, then your sins are forgiven. And while this certainly contains a truth in it, it seems to imply that our personal faith is the key mechanism that provides forgiveness for ourselves. And if we do not, then we are not forgiven, and the work of Jesus is unfinished. However, this verse, after Jesus provided purification for sin, seems to throw this entire idea out the window, for it certainly suggests that Jesus finished what he set out to do, that he set the world free from sin, that he defeated sin, that he provided purification for sin 
And this is something that changes everything. For I believe that the great event of history is not what's happening now. What's happening now is a footnote. What's happening now is of little importance in the divine scheme of things, except as the working out of the love of God amongst the people of God for those for whom Jesus came. This world is a beautiful world. It's a world shaped by God's love. It's a world shaped by God's expectation that Christ will return. And when he does, there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and all the former things will pass away. But in the meantime, we live in light of the cross. We live in light of what has happened in the past. For the last 2,000 years, the world has been given the choice to ponder the identity of Jesus Christ and, and answer his call to follow him. What Jesus did changes everything. In fact, it's the only thing that has really changed. People have moved from death to life, from despair to hope, from hatred to love. And this is only possible through the intervention of something quite profound, something that changed the natural order. In Greek, what Jesus did was to provide the purification for sin, which is hamartia, the idea of missing the mark, not reaching the target, not attaining what we want to attain. Just as a great painter is never happy with their work, but always feels it never quite reaches where it needs to be, in the same way sin operates in our life. We always miss the mark. It is never where it should be. We fail and we fail daily. And we fail in our relationships. And we fail in our love. And we miss the mark. But our English word for purification is not sufficient. And the Greek is a little more complex and controversial. And this is important because this verse is a prelude for things to come later in the letter. An idea that is so preposterous that most Christians today reject it. Some deny it exists in the New Testament at all, and many regard it as deeply offensive. It occurs seven times in the New Testament, and every time it's translated as cleansing or purification, because it refers to the temple process of the sacrificial system. Well, that's the context. In this verse, it is the word katharismos. Sorry. And it suggests the idea of cleansing and the removal of all impurities from something. It comes from the word katharizo, which is to make clean or to cleanse. This word comes from the Greek adjective katharos, which means clean, innocent, pure, guiltless, without spot or blemish, perfect. I think the idea that God actually provides forgiveness of sins is something people find deeply offensive. The idea that we do not need to do anything in order to seek God's favour, that God has already granted us favour through the death of his Son, that not only are we forgiven, but we are made clean, that we are innocent in God's sight, that we are pure in God's sight, guiltless, Without spot or blemish and perfect, this is something we find almost impossible to accept. And certainly many Christians will impose, uh, many Christians will say that 
It is not true because we must make a list of our sins and they're often to remind us of our many sins. And our response is to say to them, yes, we have sinned, but Jesus Christ died for those sins and I stand before him clean, innocent, pure and guiltless. And if you have a problem with that, take it up with the Saviour who died for sin. What are the implications of all of this for us? It suggests to me that Jesus did something that changed everything. And this something had to do with sin. And this something had to do with his provision of purification, which is really about cleansing, about taking away, about making new. Purification has the idea of this cleansing idea. And this certainly suggests that Jesus knew exactly what was being said here. Sorry, the Jews knew exactly what was being said here. That Jesus, the Son of God, made provision for the purification of sin and it was about cleansing, it was about making innocent, it was about bringing to end the problem of guilt and it was really about freedom. Why did Jesus die? Well, he provided purification for sin. So he died so that we might live. He died so that sin might be defeated. He died so that death might be defeated. But his provision of the purification of sins means for us that not only are we forgiven by God, but we are in God's sight innocent because of his sacrifice. We are cleansed because of his sacrifice. We are guiltless because of his sacrifice. We need not go from day to day living in guilt, 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 thinking that God condemns us, God condemns us. We need not confess to the priest, which is an abomination. Confess to the priest or the pastor or to your friend or your daily sins. It is against God you have sinned. And God says that he has provided forgiveness of sins to all who believe in the Son. And it's not only forgiveness, it is purification, it is cleansing, it is making clean. Katharos, we are guiltless without spot or blemish, perfect in the eyes of God. So when God looks upon us, he sees the Saviour dying for the sins of the world, including our sins. And he sees us guiltless, pure and innocent. This is an incredible thing to suggest, deeply offensive to those who believe that salvation is about working hard and being good. We're told Christians are good people. They try to live a good life. Or you hear people say, I've never killed anyone. I live a good life. I'm a good person. Who cares? God doesn't care. God cares about what happened at the cross. And he cares that we believe and trust in Jesus and that we accept him as our King and our Lord. And what it means for us is that Jesus brings this forgiveness and this cleansing. The idea that people say, oh, well, I'm good enough for God. No one is good enough for God. Only God is good. But it is God who brings this cleansing. There is guilt and there is sin in this world. There is a world of problems and pain and suffering. But Jesus entered this world, a man, God made flesh. He walked among us. He lived and he died and he rose again. 
but he died in order to provide purification for sin, for cleansing us of our sin, for making us clean and innocent in God's sight. This is what Jesus did, and this is why he died. He died so we might live. He died in our place because we could not. He stood where we could not stand. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated Diablos. What Jesus provided was freedom from sin, a real freedom, not a theoretical one or an abstract one or a potential one, but a real freedom from the problem of sin, our sin, my sin, your sin. Sin in its complete totality. It was and remains true freedom. And this is the freedom we can look forward to this year as we seek to follow Jesus. We can look back to the year that has passed. We can give thanks to God that last year Jesus died for us. And we can look forward to the year to come that after he provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Remember, freedom matters today because you matter to God. Once again, Happy New Year.